how do we begin to address the insurmountable plastic pollution problem? What is plastic offsetting and is it really a viable solution? And should we be buying recycled ocean plastic clothing? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Tom Peacock and Nazil, founder of Seven Clean Seas, who are on a mission to clean up our oceans from plastic pollution. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Duff Dixon and welcome to the podcast. Here we get into the minds of some of the most conscious humans around the world to understand how our actions affect our mental well-being, happiness and the planet. Because self and planetary healing is really an inside out job. So let's unpack this human experience together so that we can live wide awake. Half British, half Malaysian, Tom Peacock Nazil was shocked with the levels of plastic pollution seemingly everywhere after a particularly eye-opening trip to Thailand. This led him to start Seven Clean Seas, an ocean cleanup and educational organization with the goal of removing plastic pollution and prevent it from entering the ocean to begin with. They're the world's first ocean plastic offsetting solution and have created river cleanup technology, which also employs local waste management teams. To date, they've pulled over 130,000 kilos of plastic pollution out of the ocean. They've worked with companies like Marina Bay Sands and Microsoft, and out of 10,000 applications, they were selected as one of 17 companies to win the United Nations World Tourism Organization Global Startup Competition, and they received the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore Sustainability Champion of the Year. I first met Tom at one of our events, actually, where he got up and shared a little bit about his vision and what he was working on with his first beach cleanup. So I'm really excited to welcome him on the podcast today. And in this episode, we're deep diving into being an accidental environmentalist, the scale of the plastic pollution in our oceans, and the trajectory that we're on if things don't change, what plastic offsetting is, and where individuals and companies can spend their efforts. Tom, so excited to be speaking to you and have been able to watch your incredible journey over the last couple of years since we met at one of our little wedge events back in the day. So I wanted to know, actually, were you always an environmentalist growing up or what was it that really drew you to cleaning up the seas in the first place? Hey, Steph. Uh, first of all, it's, thanks for having me here. It's great to, uh, to catch up again after all this time. I think in terms of myself, whether I was always an environmentalist or not, it's a bit of a tricky question because I quite often explain like that I'm an almost an accidental environmentalist. You know, it's not something that I was proactively going down this journey and this this I guess this journey of discovery into sustainability and into environmentalism. It's something I've always cared about, but I was very much inactive, I think, within within the scene. And I should have, in hindsight, been doing a lot more and taking a lot more responsibility over it, but life gets in the way. And I think if you go back maybe 20 years, probably longer, actually, God, I'm getting old now. So maybe go back uh, kind of 25 years to when I was seven years old. Back then, I wanted to be a zoologist. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to play with animals and, and kind of go to Africa and and live the life of freedom and, and, and really kind of conservation and going through school and through university and ending up in business and then in finance, really that dream for me got well and truly buried along the way. And it wasn't until I, I started 
really exploring Southeast Asia and unfortunately seeing these enormous levels of plastic pollution seemingly everywhere that we're going that that I, I, I my passion was reignited but in a completely different sphere you know instead of kind of conservation animal conservation it was around ocean plastic pollution and, and the effects that's having on on animal life but also on on just the environmental the environment in general and coming back to Singapore with, with my wife, Pamela, and then starting these beach cleanups and, and just seeing this enormous reception from people really reignited that light in my, I guess, in, in my soul deep down that led me to where I am today and got me extremely passionate about everything from conservation to environmentalism again. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a really nice story. And nice there is that little bit of a link when you were younger as well. And you can kind of, you know, draw back on that. So let's zoom out a little bit. Maybe you can paint a bit of a broad stroke about what is the current situation with ocean plastic pollution? What are some of the limitations and issues? And I guess some of the stats that you can share with us. So we just roll on the same page with where we're at right now. Yeah, I think if we're going to be completely honest about the situation, we need to realize that we're not in a good position. The most recent science that has come out, which is a research paper called Breaking the Plastic Wave by System IQ and Pew, has suggested that actually it's not 8 million metric tons of pl plastic entering the ocean every single year, like a lot of people think it is. It's actually closer to 11 million metric tons. And under a business as usual, the current trajectory is that by 2040, which bear in mind is less than 20 years now, that's going to almost triple to 29 million metric tons of plastic entering the ocean every single year. And that's if people just carry on business as usual, implementing the solutions at a governmental level that have already been committed to, not being more ambitious and, and taking bigger actions. So it's fair to say that the situation we're currently in is fairly dire and we're staring down the barrel of, of, of something that we can see coming and it's now up to us to really put in place the mechanisms and, and hold people accountable at the same time to, to make sure that that 29 million metric tons doesn't come to fruition. Um, quite, quite starkly, actually, if we, if we did everything we possibly could. So if we do everything that we have at our disposal and really make every effort we can to, to reduce this potential outcome, the same report actually suggests that we can get that down to about 5 million metric tons per annum. So it's certainly not a win, but it is a major, major step towards a win. And the reality is that we're probably going to be looking at a world with ocean plastic pollution for the next couple of decades at a minimum. But we can put things in place to minimize that risk and stop this being an exponential curve to mass ocean pollution uh, before it's too late. Okay. And there's so much I want to unpack from that. And we're definitely going to dive deeper. Firstly, though, I'm baffled. Sorry. So right now, it, everyone thought it was 8 million. You've said that this report says it's around 11 million right now. But how does it go from 11 million to 29 million in 20 years a year? I mean, that for me is like, what is the cause of that? Where is that plastic really coming from? Is it just population growth or like, so maybe you can explain a little bit about how the plastic is actually getting into the ocean and how they're projecting that that would be the number. Yeah. No, it's, 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 
it's really something that, that we all need to kind of sit down and understand because there's so many different factors at play. First of all, the obvious thing to go to is population growth. The population on Earth is not peaking anytime soon, and I think we're expected to have another 2 billion people by the end of the century. So it is, it is exploding still, and the more people there are, the more plastic will be getting consumed. But that's happening in unison with actually the development of the uh, less developed countries on this planet, where there's a growing middle class and a more disposable income for various different products and foods and, and lifestyles that just contain a lot of plastic packaging as well. So actually we're seeing an exponential growth in consumerism when it comes to plastic and, and food consumerism as well when it comes to plastic packaging. So it's a bunch of things happening. And I always try and explain to people that actually ethically, it's a good thing that there are more people in the world with more money who can afford more plastic and, you know, plastic and the things that plastic enable, things like food preservation, for example, are actually really important. And to get more and more people in this world who are able to access that as well is, is a good thing. And ethically speaking, if we're in a more economically developed, a more infrastructural developed country and we're using plastic because it enables nice things in our lives at some point in the supply chain. We may buy it with no plastic, but I'm sure it's got plastic in that supply chain. We can't really turn around to these newly developed locations and go, actually, you can't have that. So we have an issue there, which is there is a reality that there will be a lot more plastic consumed by these communities and, and countries as they, as they develop. And we also have the added ethical kind of conundrum, which is we can't tell these people not to do it. And, uh, and, and they deserve to have just the nice things that we have. And if that unfortunately means it comes in plastic packaging, then, then, then so be it. So we've really got to then look at what our options are. And realistically, if we know that these locations are going to be having much more plastic consumed in them in the next decade or two decades, then let's work really hard today to try and put in place the systems, the infrastructures, the waste management that is required to make sure when that plastic is used and disposed of properly, it's not going to enter the natural environment. It's going to be collected and hopefully, depending on how successful um, slash how much responsibility the, um, the FMCG companies and the producers want to be in terms of designing circularity into packaging from the, from the get-go. Hopefully, that plastic can be picked up by the infrastructure and recycled effectively back into the same quality of plastics that it, that it originally was. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that I was really struggling with and why I reached out to even have this conversation with you because I'm in Phuket, as I told you, right? And I was walking on the beach and the beach was just littered with plastic. And it's been a long time since I was at a beach that there was that much plastic pollution on it. And it was there days in a row and there were people cleaning it up and I was cleaning it up and they get the same day, another storm and another lot of, of plastic. And I saw the same thing, you know, in Bangkok, I went to this beautiful little village and they just dropped the plastic on the floor. And, you know, it's not their fault, right? As you were saying, it's mm -hmm. an ethical, there's an ethics piece to this, which I think is so important to discuss. But then it made me think, okay, well then, isn't it the responsibility of the manufacturers of these big, you know, F FMCG companies and corporations that come in with these plastic products to be the ones who are actually investing in the solution and cleaning up the mess that they're creating? So, yeah, I was just really, you know, I guess shocked in that. And, and is it 
I guess maybe my naive questions, but is it an R&D issue? Like if they were to move the money that they invest in R&D for products into R&D for packaging, would that help? Is it, as you kind of alluded to, like they need to actually put the infrastructure in place, but we know that recycling rates, even globally, you know, in developed countries, isn't that great? So I don't know, maybe you can try to unpack that a little bit to be like, is it really the responsibility of the manufacturers? And if it is, are they doing anything about it or can we force them to do more? I think it's fair to say, look, everyone within the user supply chain has some level of responsibility. If you're using the plastic, you've got a responsibility to try and at least put it somewhere where it's not going to enter into the natural environment. But like you say, quite often that's not physically possible depending on where you are and what level of infrastructure there is. And then that's when really I would say the onus and the responsibility shifts towards producers and and looking at these producers and saying, well, first of all, you're providing a lot of products in packaging that haven't been designed with recycling in mind, which is the the first major uh, misdemeanor in, in my mind. You know, they've got to be, they should be held accountable for not designing packaging and products in the most recyclable way possible. Now, I get that with a lot of things and there's a lot of economic issues with developing countries with selling almost daily rations um so in the in the small little sachets of multi multi-led packaging which are almost impossible to recycle pretty much impossible to recycle and actually very hard to replace in terms of selling something on such a small scale there is a lot of money going into the r&d for packaging for solutions like this but the issue we have is today and the issue we had is five years ago and 10 years ago what we really need and what i would love to see is producers and FMCG companies taking responsibility of the locations that their products are consumed in. And instead of saying, look, we've designed this perfectly circular packaging for this perfectly circular solution and we've sold it to this location that has no infrastructure, so circularity goes out the window. What we should be saying is, if we're going to sell our product on this island, We have a responsibility for making sure that the island has a way to deal with that plastic pollution. And if you sell your product into a location fully knowingly that it's going to become plastic pollution, then actually you're the most guilty person in the in in that little loop of responsibility, in my personal in my personal um, opinion. And there are government solutions out there. There's regulatory solutions like extended producer responsibility, which puts a financial onus on the plastic that's been put into a market back onto producers. And it is great to a degree, but when a company, an FMCG company, for example, has to remove 10 tons or 10,000 tons of plastic a year from one particular country to, to satisfy that regulation. Now, that's not something that's free for them and they're for-profit businesses. So of course, they will look for a good return on investment, which means that they're going to want to invest those dollars into locations where they can get the most plastic for the lowest cost. So think high urban areas, so cities and large towns, which is great because we can already bolster uh, existing waste management infrastructure because many of these places already have some level of baseline plastic collection and processing. So they will pump money into these locations. They'll be able to collect plastic much cheaper than if it was a rural or island location simply because there's not a very big geographic spread and there's a high population density. So it just makes sense. What's going to get left behind is the rural and island locations, which although are not dense in terms of their population density and their plastic density, 
they're vast, they're enormous. So it makes up almost just as much as the, the high urban areas. And these are the areas that tend to have no baseline when it comes to waste management infrastructure. They, they may physically just not have it if you're looking at developing locations. So we're going to end up putting in regulations to try and fix the problem. But realistically, it's going to just help high urban areas and genuinely generally more affluent people and then you're creating this kind of social injustice issue as well and um, where these kind of more i guess more rural more economically unfortunate communities are living and they're also not getting the investment that they need the same study that i mentioned earlier actually the pew study breaking the plastic wave they actually also estimated really interestingly that 49 percent of all ocean plastic is originating from rural and island locations which is yeah it's considerable obviously a lot more plastic is consumed in urban areas but urban areas have collection to some degree so that's one of the reasons why we focus at Seven Clean Seas on rural and island locations as well, because we just know they've got no other way to get funding at the moment. So let's try and find a way to, to work in these locations, get funding and build some level of infrastructure. Mm. Okay. And so maybe then you can share a little bit about the work you're doing with those islands and, and how it eventuates and who's paying for it. And I guess addressing that you're sort of addressing some of those social impact issues. Yeah, for sure. So for the benefit of the of, of the listeners and the viewers, Seven Clean Seas, we're an ocean cleanup organization. We are essentially building projects that remove plastic directly from the ocean. And as we've gone down this rabbit hole for the last three plus years, we've realized that if we really want to scale our impact, one of the best places we should be looking is actually at stopping plastic from, from getting into the marine environment in the first place. And one of the best ways to do that is to go to these locations that have high levels of plastic leakage and very low levels or very inefficient levels of waste management infrastructure and, and look at ways to, to bolster that. An example of this is our kind of cornerstone project, which is in the Rio Archipelago in Indonesia. It's an absolutely beautiful set of islands and it's home to one of, the, one of Indonesia's largest marine protected areas as well, like just off the coast of where we work. So it's got this high ecological and biodiverse value to it and it's completely inundated with plastic amongst other environmental issues so what we started doing was when COVID-19 hit and being a tourism-based economy as well a lot of people were losing their jobs or being furloughed so we hired 22 people who were furloughed from the tourism industry we paid them the same income that they were getting paid which was around one and a half times the basic salary for Indonesia. So it's making sure people get paid proper wages for proper work as well. And we've had them doing environmental cleanup, which has been an amazing result, to be honest, because we've been able to explore the system, get to know the governments and the various different players and, and what infrastructure already exists. And, and then from that, as a base, really designing a scale up of, of, our, of our collection capabilities. And, and that takes the form of physically building the island of Bintan in the Rio Archipelago's first ever plastic waste management infrastructure. Currently, nothing gets recycled, period. Even if it's got a value, because by the time you transport it to where it can be recycled, it's, it's, you've lost money. So it's non-economically recyclable, even though it's technically recyclable. And by building a materials recovery facility, we can aggregate the plastic from our beach cleanups and from our coastal cleanups and offshore, nearshore, 
and mangrove cleanups. But we can also start working with the coastal communities and the Orang Lao communities, which is this local sea gypsy communities, as well as maybe some of the industry and hospitality industry there and say, look, we will take your plastic. We will literally take it off you. We'll bring it back to our facility. We will sort it for the different types of plastics which can be recycled. We'll then bale those plastics into basically wanton bales and, and store it until we've got enough to economically justify shipping it 1,463 kilometers over water to the closest recycling infrastructure. And for the first time ever, we will be able to aggregate plastic and store it until the volumes are high enough so that doesn't lose too much money. Obviously, it's not going to make money, but it's it won't lose too much money. And our vision for the future is to really go from the environmental cleanups, which we've been doing for a year now, to the aggregation and sorting, which is what we're currently building, through to actually having the whole value chain of recycling in the Rio Archipelago, so that no more does this have to be shipped to Java and only the most expensive plastics can, can, can make it through there. We want everything to be recycled domestically within the Rio Archipelago. So you can try and create this like micro chasm, this mini eco ecosystem within the Rio Archipelago where they can actually recycle their own plastics and then it gets a value and then it stops being discarded into the environment. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And uh, so inspiring, especially during a pandemic to be able to put all of that together. Like it's really impressive and hopeful, you know, gives gives hope for the future. And I know you've also been working on river cleanup systems. So are you able to share a little bit more about this? Because <laughs> Yeah, this is, yeah, I love this one. It's, it's hilarious because, I mean, for me, I've, I've, I'm a huge fan of some of the other systems on the market. And, uh, and one particular large-scale solution w was launched about a year and a half ago, and we were watching it, and we were like, this is amazing. And being in the industry, we started to poke around to understand the economics behind it. And we just realized it was, it was inhibitively expensive for the Asian market. We know for a fact that municipalities throughout Asia don't have enough money to build proper, efficient onshore waste management collection. Now, how do you go to one of these organizations and say, look, I know you can't afford this, but we want a bunch of money to build a system and install it on your river. I mean, the reality is it's just not going to happen unless you're paying for it. And if you're paying for it, then it's not really scalable because you require donations and donors and partners and sponsors. And it might be one this year, two the next year, four the year after, the most recent study that's come out on rivers has actually said that there's over a thousand that are the main contributors to mm. ocean plastic pollution. So that's the scale we're working with. And we need to find a way to plug those rivers as, as quickly as possible if we're going to, to really move the needle on ocean plastic pollution. So we partnered with a, a few different people. We developed this system and uh, we're actually, we've got funding all secured now to, to build the first one of which we've got two target rivers, either the south of Vietnam, Kati River or Greater Bangkok, Bangpakong River as target rivers. So hopefully by the end of this year, but COVID-19 has just done what it's done for everybody and delayed the project. So maybe, maybe next year. But really, the idea of this pilot is not just to validate the technology and that it can collect one and a half million kilos a year, which is substantial on itself in itself, but also test a new financial model that we're looking at because we've realized that the innovation doesn't come from building a technology that cleans the river. I mean, it's innovative, yeah, but it's not where we need the innovation to be funneled. We need the innovation to be focusing on how do we deploy these systems at scale 
And we're working on a CapEx model with a financial uh, partner of ours to find a way to completely eliminate the upfront CapEx requirements. So they don't even have to pay for the system. Almost like we can gift a system and lease it to them at just the operational expenses and maintenance expenses. I won't get into the details of it because we're still working out the nuts and bolts, but we think we've uh, we've developed this system where literally we can change the conversation from, hey, Mr. Municipality, you've got a dirty river. Do you want to give me a million dollars to put my technology on it? Um, not that our system is a million dollars. To, hey, Mr. Municipality, you've got a dirty river. We've got a solution that will clean it and generate you profit within about eight years. So you completely change the narrative to actually something that's costing them money to something that will make them money whilst satisfying another solution, which is that they need, which is uh, to actually remove the plastic in their river. Wow, that's so exciting. And I love the fact that you dug around, saw the issues, and then completely reimagined the way to actually create this so that it is a viable solution for Southeast Asia. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Can't wait to see how the first ones do. And so I'd love to talk a little bit. So I I actually asked on my Instagram if anyone had questions, right? Because I was just having a moment with my (laughs) beach, like in Phuket. And I was like, I'm sure there's other people that that want questions answered. And one really interesting question came through that I wanted to, to bring up. And that was, and I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing, adding my own spin onto it too, but uh, Seaspiracy, right? Which raised a lot of awareness around the impacts of the commercial fishing industry. And so I have a two-part question. Firstly, what did you actually think of the documentary? And secondly, are there any initiatives to reduce commercial fishing or spread more awareness about this issue for people that we can actually start to get behind and start to move the needle? Yeah, for sure. So firstly, it needed making. I think anybody that is in sustainability realizes that the story of the commercial fishing industry is, is, is absolutely something that needs highlighting when it comes to modern slavery, when it comes to habitat destruction, unsustainable fishing practices, collapse, literally the collapse of, of entire fish stocks because humans are just greedy, essentially. Um, that's a story that needs telling because we've got to find ways and means to actually already address it. Now, I actually spoke yesterday with one of the world's biggest commercial fishing companies. And I I always bring this up because it's just nice to see people kind of squirm. And and I wanted to see what their their opinion was. And and they literally turned around to me and they said that, well, you know what? It was good that the, the thing was made because everyone's now talking about it. And this person was in sustainability, of course. It helps her do what she's trying to do within the business. And she actually said that all the topics that have been brought up are topics that every single major commercial fishing company with a sustainability department is already looking at and working on. So that gave me a bit of a bit of hope. And I think that's important because the way that it was the way that it was filmed and documented was very much to invoke a reaction from people rather than be a subjective overview of 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 the actual situation. And I would have loved to have seen more solutions. There are some fantastic solutions out there. I think there is a company in Chile, if I'm not mistaken, that uses satellites to track illegal fishing vessels and then get them. Yeah, literally, it's insane. Like just they're watching from space. They can see the illegal fishing vessels. They know which port it goes to and they can get the port to arrest the fishing vessels. So there are all sorts of really kind of amazing things going out there. It was super concerning to see the way that I guess the 
certification bodies reacted to the to the questioning that they were put under. But at the same time, I think that there are people out there trying their best to actually fix this industry. And, and we have to realize that not everybody is going to be vegan. And a large proportion of this entire world relies on fish as their major source of protein and always has done, really. What we need to do is actually highlight the issues and, and try and find ways and to open a discussion and dialogue of how we can fix the fix the problem. So I would have liked to see less sensationalism and more practicality, but it did definitely get people talking about the issue, which is super important. I think if I look at it from a plastics perspective, I had a moment when I was sat on the couch, because the middle bit of the documentary was plastic. Like The first bit, I was almost in tears. The second bit, I was on the verge with the whole... I'm not going to go into it, the whaling bit, but the middle bit that was on plastic, there was a moment when I was like, dude, like we are on the same side. We have different sides of the same coin. You're looking at the fishing industry. We're looking at plastic pollution. Please don't try and kind of diminish our activities and our our importance just so that it it further pushes your, your, um, your intentions of the documentary. So I think, I think that wasn't very professional of him to be honest. But, um, but apart from that, that's my honest appraisal of the whole thing. Yeah. But I think there was a few industry people who felt that way. You know, I don't think you were alone in, in mm. the way that you felt there. And so let's kind of hone in a little bit on solutions then. So in terms of both for plastic pollution, but if you can also shed any solutions aside from what the, the chili example you gave also for like commercial fishing and, and how, cause you know, that also is connected to the plastic issue anyway. So what as companies or as citizens or individuals, like where should we really be focusing our attention and our action so that we can help to mitigate and to make sure we don't hit the 29 million? You know? The first thing we need to do is understand what the current status is. So whether you're an individual, whether you're a business, whether you're anything in between, just actually go through a process of auditing yourself. Like don't act any differently. But just try and audit yourself. See, okay, well, where is my plastic being consumed? You know, no one's going to call you a bad person if you use single-use plastic once in a while. You know, it comes with a level of convenience. Maybe you need water and you're dehydrated one day and you don't have your reusable bottle because you've just forgotten it. Like, it's, it's not the end of the world. But first of all, we need to know kind of where we are if we're ever going to improve. And then that gives us a basis, a baseline, if you were, to use as a starting point for, for improvements. Now, one of the services we do for for organizations, which is definitely down this road and and super relevant, is working with companies to do waste audits so that we can tell them, like, this is the plastic you're using. These are the contamination rates, the amount of plastics that could be recycled that are are not being recycled. And then we can make recommendations off the back of that and, and, and improve it. And the more we go down this road of kind of waste consulting for businesses, the more I realize that actually it's the right way to do it personally as well. Like, let's take a stock take of the amount of plastic that we're using in our lives, where it is, what kind of plastic is it is, and then whether or not it is possible to eliminate that plastic um, easily. One thing I've always loved about kind of your messaging around, around this is how people should take it incrementally. And I think you call it little green steps. Yeah. And it's so important because the step from reusability to single use back in the 80s or 70s whenever it happened for various people 
you know, that was a, it was a convenience step. People made the step and it didn't hurt them. It didn't inconvenience them. So it was really easy. When you're undoing that move back to reusability, like the reality is there is, even though, even though it's negligible, there's a negligible amount of inconvenience and uncomfortableness from that decision. So I think it's important to do one thing and do it again and again and again and build it into your routine until it becomes just normality to you. I mean, one of the beauties of humans and, and weaknesses actually as well is that we become desensitized to things very quickly. So if we create ourselves a little bit of discomfort by choosing one part of our life to make more sustainable, but we push it and we do it for 60 days, 90 days, before you know it, actually it's no longer uncomfortable. It's just, it's just habitual. And then it's about doing that again and again and again and again in different areas of your life until you get to a point where you've never really been, you've not bitten off more than you can chew, but you've been able to develop a lot of good habits that reduce plastic, but also reduce meat intake, reduce the amount you're flying and, and emissions and things like that along the way. So just take it slowly and take it incrementally. Mm, I think that's, that's really great. You know, it really is a journey and we don't want to overwhelm people that they end up going back worse than they were, you know, when they started on this journey or had that awakening moment. So I think that's great for an individual aspect. And then when you talked about the plastic waste audit you're doing with companies, can any company do that? I mean, are there, so, you know, if there's people listening that want to try to get their companies to do that or looking at, I think plastic offsetting is another solution that you provide. So maybe you can also shed a little bit of light on, on that. Yeah, absolutely. So we recently invested in a consultancy side of the business because we realized that we need to start at the beginning of this. And that is the whole, what do I use? What is my data? How much plastic are we using and where are we using it? And that can all be determined by going through the process of a thorough waste audit. Now you can do that at a very top line yourself, or you can get a professional in ourselves or other people in the market to, to, genuinely do a deep dive and, and really get granularity on what are the plastic streams, what are the waste streams, what are my opportunities for reduction. So where are the low hanging fruit that we can eliminate from the from this the plastic consumption within this business. So that's really the first bit. So you just know where we are today and how we make immediate action to reduce our plastic footprints. The second once we have that data is really committing to long term action. So this is where we are today. These are the things that we can implement within the next month that will reduce our plastic footprint down 20%. But by 2030, we want to be net zero plastic. We want to get to a way where we've changed the design of whatever it is that we're doing, whether we've changed the processes, the actual materials themselves, or unfortunately for necessary plastics, we've waited for the scientists to come up with, with great alternative polymers that I'm sure will happen, just I don't know when. So it's about making a long-term commitment then, I think, to, to actually being responsible and, and eliminating all the necessary plastics. And then the last point is like, what do you do in the interim? And that's really kind of the core of our, of our organization. You know, we've got these, we've got these projects, these river cleanup projects, these infrastructure projects overseas in developing locations with high levels of plastic leakage and they're expensive. They cost a lot of money. So what we say to organizations is that why don't hit like as an idea, you offset the plastic that you have to use today until you're able to eliminate it entirely. And really the process of plastic offsetting or the definition is, is really for a company to offset their plastic footprint 
the necessary plastic footprint, which is really important, by investing in projects that tackle plastic pollution. So you might not be able to fix the plastic consumption habits or, or, or necessities and requirements within your business, but you can invest in projects overseas that are going to recover plastic from the ocean or stop it getting there in the first place. And although offsetting is not a be-all and end-all solution, it's not a final fix, it's something you can do in the interim until science catches up, until you're able to redesign or go through whatever process you need to do to eliminate those plastics. Mm. Yeah. And so I guess, cause it's, it's such a good idea, especially, and I, I think it's really important that you stress the fact that it's an interim solution that they should be reducing. You know, this is not something that they can do to continue creating and using unnecessary plastic in the supply chain. Cause I think, you know, carbon offsetting, which I guess, you know, now you're saying plastic offsetting, carbon offsetting kind of has like a little bit of murkiness around it. And so I guess, how do you see this as different and what have people's reactions been to when you've spoken to them or gone to businesses about this idea of plastic offsetting? Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's fair to say that carbon offsetting is awash with issues itself. Now it can be used for greenwashing and often is, but sometimes it's used genuinely for, for good reasons. Like, I mean, you see Microsoft offsetting, not just their current carbon emissions, but their historic carbon emissions as well. You know, you cannot eliminate historic carbon emissions, but you can offset them if, if you wanted to. But it really comes down to the company's genuine genuineness around the targets that they're setting themselves. The actual achievability of the targets, whether it's plastic or, or carbon, because I think it's fair to say there's so many targets flying around out there that half of them are not even achievable, which is a, a conversation within its own right and a rant within mm -hmm. its own right. But um, for us, really, the, the key is to avoid greenwashing. We don't want people to use our plastic credits so that they can say, no, we're plastic neutral. We're just going to keep producing plastic. There are a couple of fundamental things that I think will stop that from ever happening with our credits. Now, I'm not saying this won't happen for the market, and I believe that every financial market ever made, not just credits, even banks or investment banking or, or the stock market, you know, every single financial market in the history of humans, unfortunately, have been subject to bad actors and some level of manipulation. And that is likely to happen in, in offsetting, and it's likely to happen in, in in um, plastic offsetting as well, but we have an opportunity and a responsibility to minimize those risks. Now, the way we do that is, is twofold. The first one is the fact that the cost of the credit and of the offset has to be higher or at least painful enough to invoke a natural kind of investment into reduction so that it's cheaper for mm -hmm. them to reduce their, their plastic than it is to just offset it. And this is really the stark difference between carbon credits and plastic credits. A carbon credit might be a 25-year project. It might have a massive upfront capex, like capital investment may be enormous, but a really low operational expense thereafter. So when you take that 25-year project and you divide it by the amount of credits it's generated, actually the cost of credit can be super low. And that's why we're seeing some credits from as cheap as 5 dollars a ton of carbon up to 50 dollars or 50 pounds is what i think it is now for half decent credits there's a price point there that is just way too cheap and you know that if shipping companies are becoming carbon neutral and carbon companies are becoming carbon neutral i mean obviously the uh, the, the petrochemical companies then it's actually cheaper to offset than it is just to, to stop polluting which is madness 
the way you get around with that, around that with plastic offsetting is just in the inherent difference between our projects. So to create a plastic project, we have that high upfront capital expenditure again, because we're building a facility, we're hiring people on proper wages and it requires a lot of money, but actually it's not much cheaper in the subsequent years because you've still got all the wages, the maintenance, the infrastructure and everything else that you need to be running. So you end up with this high operational expense. So the cost difference between a plastic credit and a carbon credit is momentous. It's, it's enormously different. And I think it's fair to say that when you're looking at $50 for a carbon credit, you might be looking at $1,000 for, for a plastic credit or even more, $2,000, depending on, on the projects that they're, they're supporting and the co-benefits co of those projects. So it is at this stage anyway, and it always will be for us, um, an expensive endeavor. And that's very important in terms of minimizing the risk of somebody using it for greenwashing, for example. Yeah, and I think it's 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 such an important point that a lot of the time the true environmental cost is not factored into the cost of producing and the cost of buying and that really hopefully will start to be shifting with new legislation and consumer demand and companies just doing things better. So, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to explain that as well because it is a very important point and I think would help people to navigate through to make sure that these companies are not greenwashing and what's happened with the carbon industry is not going to happen with this plastic offsetting industry as well. So are there any other kind of misconceptions or myths around the work you do or plastic in the ocean or anything else that you would love to just sort of set the record straight for? So many. Um, let's start on the fact that plastic in the ocean, once it's been under the sun, once it's been bashed around it, and once it's got living things on it, like algae and crustaceans, it is not recyclable. Like the amount of people calling their products ocean plastic when the reality is it's ocean-bound plastic. Now, that doesn't sound like a very big difference, but it's a fundamental difference. And it's something that I'm very passionate about because we are working so hard to find recycling solutions for plastic that's coming out of the marine environment, but it is so contaminated. It's so mechanically de degraded and UV degraded that it's almost useless to, to everybody apart from burning it if you wanted to burn it, which, you know, whether or not that's a good idea, depending on, well, it's never a good idea, but depending on the alternative um, infrastructure that you have. And then the definition of ocean bound plastic is really, or the, the most widely accepted one is that plastic that was collected within 50 kilometers of the, of the coastline in areas with high levels of plastic leakage. Now, on one hand, that's a really good thing because we need to encourage investment into these locations. So if we can create a additional value for that plastic, or at least the collection of that plastic, then we should see a reaction, which is more people collecting it and then less plastic leaking into the environment. So it's actually an amazing thing, ocean-bound plastic. But I just don't know why people don't just call it ocean-bound plastic and be like, guys, this shoe's made out of ocean-bound plastic. It's wicked. No, they've got to say it's ocean plastic. And it's just, mm. I, I just don't get it. I think it's the marketing department, but um, it's, it really frustrates me, as you might be able to tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's one of them. And then the others really are that people have to realize that we don't pay enough for our waste management we basically don't pay for our waste management, but we're not paying enough for our waste management. The current plastic waste management infrastructure internationally is literally only able to exist because it relies and sits on the shoulders of poverty. 
And what I mean by that is that we've got millions and millions of informal waste collectors collecting the recyclable plastics, earning between $1 and $8 a day, depending on their gender, depending on their age, because they might be children as well, and depending on the location that they're collecting in. And that's the only way to feasibly at an economical level recycle because the value of plastic is, is insignificant. And for somebody to go collect 20 kilos of PET in one day in a landfill that's dangerous without any PPE, any healthcare, any job, any maternity leave, any anything essentially, for them to collect that 20 kilos is, is really hard and miserable work. And then they go sell it for a few dollars and then we'll buy a product made from recycled plastic and feel really good about ourselves. And really, we've just not factored in the cost of recycling or the fact that we need to build this infrastructure. And that's something that we're trying to fundamentally change. One thing that we've set ourselves as a red line is that although we understand these people are reliant on these incomes and we should always protect their jobs, we have a responsibility to A, not proliferate the industry by creating a waste management structure that relies on, on more people or encourages more people to get into the informal sector, but B, actually provides proper jobs. You know, there's a much bigger risk from an organization because we've got to have all of these people on our, on our books. We've got to pay their health insurance. We've got to pay their medical insurance. It's, it's a massive financial liability, which is why people don't do it. But we want to show the world that it is possible and we want to determine what the price is for actual waste management. If you want to collect X kilos of plastic, this is the cost. And it's likely to be a couple of zeros on the end of what it currently is with the informal waste sector. And if we're not able to fix that, we're not going to be able to fix that section of poverty. And I'm a true believer that actually plastic pollution is a direct result of poverty. And the two exist in, in union and they're kind of, we're trapping people in poverty to try and stop plastic pollution and it's creating plastic pollution. It's, it's, it's just utter madness. So what I would love to see is, is an entire movement from people with a voice, people who are able to, to make, a, make a, a voice and just say, look, we've, it's about time we start paying for, for our waste management. You want to consume plastic, single-use plastic or multi-use plastic, that's fine but there is cost associated to getting rid of that properly. And that means supporting people's livelihoods, jobs, and families. And that's just something that no one's talking about at the moment, which is, uh, which is wrong. Do you think within our lifetime though, that's going to be, I mean, I know you've got the big vision and you're working on it, but do you see it's going to like all the pieces are going to come together to make that a reality within our lifetime? The only way it will become a reality is if it's regulated. Now we're doing this, it's making our operations extremely expensive. It's increasing our liability and it's difficult. So why would anyone do this? It's kind of madness to do it at, at this stage, but we want to just prove that it is possible. You know, we can't pay for it with the current value of plastics. Plastic's too cheap. But when we take the value of the material we collect and we add that to the, the value of our plastic credit that we're generating, which we can then sell on, you know, we have a much bigger pot of money that we can employ people with. And realistically, what I would love to see is within our lifetime, regulators from governments realizing that we have to do two things. We have to either mandate some form of additional value. It could be a plastic credit. It could be an EPR strategy. It could be something that no one's even thought about yet, but some other additional value for waste management to actually supplement the, the industry or say, you know what? There is a minimum price for plastic. 
And if they do a minimum price for virgin plastic, particularly, the value for recyclable plastics will inherently rise as well. Because if you make virgin plastic more expensive, everybody will push for recycle, recyclable plastic. And then therefore that supply demand basics, it will, it will become more expensive and then there'll be more money in the system to pay the people properly. So maybe, I'm not, I'm not gonna go all in on that one, but, but maybe. Mm, thank you. And I mean, do you ever have moments because it's, it's so insurmountable sometimes, you know, doing this work and hearing the, the numbers and, and seeing the plastic coming on, on the shores and doing the cleanups and everything. I mean, do you ever have moments where you just want to give up or, and if you do, or, you know, what do you do in those moments? Where do you find the strength to keep going? <laughs> do you have like tools or conscious practices or I don't know, anything that just <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to answer that in two parts. It's really sad, but I'm so desensitized to it now. It's now just a problem. It's like playing chess for me now. It's and and that upsets me that I'm no longer upset about this. Like I can walk in like the most dirty place. I can go to places where the informal sector are earning nothing and having really shitty lives. Sorry for swearing, but um, it it just gets to that point where you just get so desensitized to it. It's like oh, this is just this is what it is. And and um, you know what I do? I've I've had this conversation with Ben, my my co-founder, before. It's like I I miss the feeling of being really getting really angry about these things because I think that really helps motivate and, and, and keep pushing things forward. In terms of myself and kind of how I deal with it all, I don't spend a great deal of time worrying about the state of the situation. I spend a great deal of time worrying about the organization that I'm building and how the wider market is going to react and whether we can get people on board because this has to be mass adoption if it's going to work you know if we only remain on the fringes of of the world then it's 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 not going to work and like how do we get there how do we get to the point where you know everybody's looking at, at not just us as other players now but like looking as at us as one of the 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 potential solution providers in blind it works they proved it let's let's replicate this wherever we are and and that's what really kind of makes me struggle because it becomes so overwhelming sometimes, particularly when we're so busy as a small startup. And, uh, and, and for me, I've started doing quite a few things in terms of like mindfulness and I'm a huge believer in, in, in like life coaching and personal development and things like that. And even like simple things like waking, I wake up at usually when we're, particularly when we're very busy, I'll get up at like half five, six o'clock. I'll have a cup of tea on my balcony and listen to, I listen to the Mindset Mentor on um, um, Apple Podcasts and, and a few other things and just get a bit of a boost, get a bit of a mental boost, personal boost to get motivated again and then really get stuck into my emails before the day starts. And I found that I'm so much better at making decisions and being efficient and being effective between the kind of six and nine o'clock than I am at any other part of the day. That's really when I just have no distractions and I can get on with whatever particular task it is, whether that's firefighting for our team in Indonesia or whether that's making a proposal for a new project or, or, or kind of just getting back to, back to emails so that when the day does kick off, you know, I can actually spend that time thinking about the bigger purpose of what we're trying to do rather than just thinking short term email, email. Oh, God, I'm so overwhelmed with all of this work. It's like just clear the table before your day even starts and then you can focus on what's important. Mm, I think that's great. That's really 
a good a good little hack and then what do you nap in the middle of the day or something or you just end yeah. early <laughs> I, I well um, i was when i was working at home and um, before we we grew the team when it was just my co-founder and i i, I got into a really bad habit of having long naps in the after like after lunch <laughs> um like eat a big lunch have like a half an hour nap and then half an hour of grogginess trying to wake up with coffee but those days are long gone now we've got a team so it's just getting used to just you just get used to it you know there's a lot of people that sleep less i'm not sleeping i still believe in lots of sleep i think i hate people who wear lack of sleep and short nights as a badge of honor i think it, i think mm. it's stupid like you're gonna burn out you're gonna and if you're not burning out doing it then you're obviously not working hard enough anyway and that's probably because you're tired so um i think that you do for me personally i, I still want to be getting to bed at 10 o'clock at night and if I'm waking up at half five or six, that's still a good night's sleep. I've just kind of shifted my, my day a little bit to the, uh, to the front end. But yeah, mm. it is important. And how do you think we can live wide awake? Just start your journey, you know, stick your head down the rabbit hole, as I like to, like to say. You've got to find one thing that you're passionate about within sustainability or whatever it is that you, you're, you're interested in. It doesn't have to be sustainability. Find something you're passionate about and just kind of get stuck into it. And before you know it, that will link to something else and link to something else and link to something else. And um, before you know it, you'll, you will be woke, whether you like it or not, I think. And that, that really stems back to how we started this conversation. Like I'm an accidental environmentalist. And the reason is, I think, because plastic is so tangible. Ocean plastic is such a in-your-face issue that it's easy to, for it to almost be a gateway drug. Right. And it's just, I become so, you become so passionate about this one thing. And then the more you're reading up about it, the more you're meeting sustainably minded people and reading sustainably minding, minded um, kind of blogs and various things. You then see other articles and other things. And it might be then, okay, mass extinction, biodiversity crisis, gender equality, Black Lives Matter. It's, they're all interlinked actually within. In, in a weird way. And it's just starting that journey by, for me, like I would always say stick, sticking your head down the rabbit hole. You've just got to find one that you're passionate about first. I love that phrase. Definitely going to keep that one. Well, Tom, thank you so much. This was really fantastic. Really excited about all the projects you're working on and the hope that you're bringing to the plastic pollution problem. Thank you so much for, for having me. And um, if anybody's interested in the work we do, Head over to www.7cleanseas.com. We rely heavily on partners and on our network like Steph for giving us a platform to tell the world about what we're doing and why we're doing. So um, please reach out. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Tom. Firstly, the true cost of the environmental and social impact of plastic has not been factored in, but it needs to. Policy, consumer pressure, and industry can help to make this a reality. Secondly, to begin to improve things, let's start with plastic audits for ourselves or for our companies, reduce as much as possible and offset what is necessary in the interim. And thirdly, no matter where you're at, stick your head down the rabbit hole. I love this idea and see where your exploration takes you and do not stop exploring. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode? And what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. 
And until next time, live wide awake.